Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Recording has begun. Hello and welcome to what is, I think, simultaneously the bilge pumps on this new this new stream, bilge pumps number five, and also bilge pumps number eight, and it is the much promised China episode because <laughs> we can only avoid the topic of China as much as we do if probably about once a month. We break down and we do a China episode because they do so, so much. And because Jamie's blood pressure can only go so high before we allow it to be spiked and go down a bit. What? What's wrong with my blood pressure? <laughs> I'm just trying to get a bit of diversity in, uh, in subject matter, that's all. But there's no doubt about it. I mean, they're building what more ships per year than just about you know, the... Uh, the, the, the second, third, and fourth largest navies combined in, in terms of their total size, aren't they? So, mm. yes, it's something, something ridiculous like that. It's uh, uh, it's 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 a, an absolutely amazing uh, production run that they're spitting out there, and some of those ships are, you know, I, I, they look on the surface to be really quite capable. So the trouble know, is, it takes about. 20 to 40 years to generate decent captains you can't you can can build a ship a lot quicker than you can build officers who i trust to run them on the far side of the world yeah but is this a problem that's only facing china no it faces pretty much everyone but if you consider the other navies do have uh, especially the ones which are shrinking do have the nice advantage that they've been training a lot more officers than they need yeah, but at the same time, the career prospects of said navies are pretty poor, so they've probably all moved into um, business by now. Yeah, that is a problem. Hmm. So, you know, what's the point of staying in a navy that you know will only have, uh, you know, won't have a destroyer fleet or won't have a submarine fleet or won't have a carrier fleet or, you know, whose frigates are going to be um, numbered in one, on one hand? It's... it's um, you're going to lose your best because they'll be poached. Yeah. So I so guess you know, that, that may already the be... The Chinese ha- system is more likely to keep its best because they have them, uh, because they have it, but it's also going to be leavened out by how many of its best don't get through, but are very, very good in terms of their political commissars and make them very happy. Mm. And we're kind of changing up the order. We're kind of changing up the order on Jamie here, much okay. to his, you know, thing. But I just <laughs> think this one actually does feel. This sort of does feed in more into the sort of the, what was our second point planned mm. for today. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's one of those things where I think when you have any kind of political commissariat, it's an admission of a problem to start with. Because if you genuinely need somebody out there, almost literally with a gun to the back of the head of the captain to say, you will make sure that you act in the best interests of China or the party, whichever one they're particularly choosing to use that day. Which specifically um, means don't do anything wrong and don't lose. Yes. It's, 
with the best will in the world, you should trust your captains to be you have that attitude anyway. If your captains don't have that attitude, well, they probably shouldn't be captains. Or if they do have that attitude, but they've concluded they want to do something completely different from what the party or China wants them to do, then you have either well, either you have a fundamental problem with your early screening of your crewmen, or you have a fundamental problem with your country, one way or the other. And um, you also have a captain who's constantly self second guessing himself. Yeah, well, th- th- this is the thing: a-, a ship has one captain. If you have a captain who's constantly going, um, I want to do this, but is that okay, Mr. Political Commissar? That might work in peacetime, where the decision loop generally is relatively long, and you can afford to have a quote-unquote discussion before some major decision is taken. But to say, well, one, other navies manage to get along with their captains acting in the best interests of their country most of the time without having somebody pointing a gun at their head. And two, it's when you start to get into combat situations or, should we say, aggressive negotiation situations that this system can fall down very quickly because either someone just quietly arranges for an accident or locks the political commissar away in a room somewhere, at which point you've just proven you didn't actually need them. Or they're still around, they're second-guessing the captain, and, well, in the Cold War, when the decision loop was maybe minutes, that was a problem. In modern war, where your decision loop might be measured in tens of seconds, the time it takes for somebody to for a political commissar to raise an objection to what you're doing is probably the time it takes something like Al-Razm to cross the horizon into uh, lethal, lethal range, regardless of whether or not your CRWS takes it down or not. But, yeah, I, I, I guess, though, what, what, what is the role of the commissar? I mean, you know, we automatically think of the person looming over your shoulder judging every move, mm-hmm. but surely that would be something that would be revealed to be a problem even, you know, to uh, the Soviet Russia, that um, they need well, their captains to do their thing. So the, you know, is, is, is this just a, a matter of us falling into stereotypes of how these things work? Or are these officers more concerned about the, um, you know, the onboard censorship, the onboard messaging, the onboard reading from the little book of Z? Um, you know, is it these? Is, is it more? Is it more likely to be that in reality than it is the guy with the um, guns at the back of the captain's head? Well, in a way, they're sort of also, and we know this from history, they also sort of fulfill the role of what we would call the divisional officers in the Royal Navy. Uh, they're looking after the, the social and welfare care of the sailors. They're who they go to if they have issues. You know, in nice way, they combine the role in the Royal Navy of the Bish, uh, which is the, um, you know, pre, uh, the vicar aboard. Uh, you have all the divisional system. They basically substitute that. So they become... All sorts of things, plus they're doing the education and these things. And interesting enough, it, when the Russians did actually have a mutiny on a top-of-the-line warship, it was led by a political commissar. 
Mm. Yes, well, the yeah. definition of politics, isn't it? <laughs> because whereas the officers were seen as aloof and separate from the men, because all they did was give them orders in operations, and then otherwise it was the political commissar who did everything else. The political commissar was seen as the friend of the uh, of the sailors. Yeah, and mm. that can be a far bigger problem, I think, than in nicest way, the figurative gun to the captain's head. The disconnect it could drive between the captain and the officers and the crew. Yeah, and, and the thing is, at the end of the day, if you give somebody this kind of extrajudicial power beyond the, beyond the power of, of the captain, they may choose to exercise it sensibly, they may choose to exercise it poorly, and again, it almost becomes a matter of quality control, not just of your crew, which you should be doing anyway, but also of your commissars, because historically the the, the PLAN is relatively small. They're now expanding. So perhaps before you could keep a, a tight control over the, the quality of specific commissars you might send out with, with your small number of ships. But if you've got a large number of ships, well, we know even the US Navy has occasionally had issues with certain people getting to captain rank because of various connections that they've got and then proving themselves to be thoroughly incapable of fulfilling that role properly and the, the Royal Navy, Navy has a history of getting rid of those people very harshly yeah. and but the thing is if you can have that happen in navies that have got a long tradition and systems in place to yeah. deal with that a rapidly expanding navy that's having to do that kind of vetting and checking for two, effectively two separate commanders, the captain and the commissar, there are going to be people who slip through the net and it's those people who will be the problem because they will be the ones that everybody else in the fleet hears about. They're the ones that everybody's going to, within the fleet, is going to judge when they get a new commissar and, oh, is he going to be like this particular person that we've heard about? But also, they're the ones who are going to make be the ones who make the mistakes in combat because, yeah, the one who basically views himself as a social welfare upkeep, make sure you're reading your little red book kind of person, when the missiles start flying or when there's a, a tense standoff, will probably step back and let the professionals handle it. But the guy who's slightly off his rocker and thinks he's actually role playing Warhammer 40,000 rather than real life, he might be on the next ship over. And only I, in I a standard, it only takes one ship, one person making one wrong move to, to, to set off the fireworks. And in combat, if it ever comes down to that, again, it only takes one, a few seconds hesitation or one wrong decision. And when you're talking about squadrons or battle groups or things like that, it doesn't matter if nine out of ten ships do their job properly because they're forming a, a cohesive net if one ship fails in its duty, then all of a sudden things start exploding and everything's burning and it doesn't matter that the other nine did their job properly. Getting back to the actual you know, commissar mm. themselves, I guess yeah. part of the scenario is that they've got a competitive career path, haven't they? So it's in their interest to uh, finger a few senior officers of ships because mm. it looks good. Oh, look, we saved the great plan because we found out that the first lieutenant was X and the captain 
failed to read his little red book every third day. You know, these sorts of things very quickly become, uh, I would imagine, could potentially become uh, some quite undermining to um, not necessarily the, the morale of the, the crew, but most certainly of its officers. So, well, yeah. um, you know, if you've got a, um, a, a political commissar whose uh, ambitions is set um, high in um, Beijing, then the more drive they're going to have to um, you know, undermine the, uh, the ship's officers, mm. I suppose. And, and it leads to a degradation of the overall quality of your officer cadre because you're going to have people watching their step, not taking decisions that they otherwise would have that might be very good decisions because they're worried about uh, a slightly off the rails commissar coming after them. But also you're, you're going to get politics and intrigue. You're going to get commissars who be like, ah, oh, yes, but this particular officer is like the wife's fourth cousin's nephew's relative sister's brother of this other guy that we executed 20 years ago for treason. And this guy might be a perfectly fine officer. He might be one of your rising stars, but because of this tangential connection, you think he's politically unreliable and you make something up or make a mountain out of a molehill in some minor infraction. And then you lose potentially a very bright, a bright um, candidate for your officers. And or alternatively, you have the other thing where you have, oh, this person is the nephew of a member of the Politico Borough. You cannot discipline him. Mm. And you're yeah. sort of, and as a captain, sitting going, but he's an absolute twit. Yeah, but he, but he gets straight A report card. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, mean, I, I guess the other element though is, that it's, um, you know, we've seen the rise of the wolf warrior diplomat, who's, uh, you know, aggressively um, spouting off on Twitter, which any of their compatriots would be jailed for immediately, mm. of course. Um, but, you know, being really quite outspoken, really quite hostile and aggressive because it makes them look good that they are standing up for the interests of the, um, you know, of the red state. Um, I guess it would be very easily, um, be very tempting for the, a ship's polit political officer to become a wolf warrior commissar. So push that captain to ram that um or get closer to that uh, U.S. ship that dares to go through the Taiwan Strait, or mm. through the, the close to an island in the South China Sea. So you've got, I guess, it's another 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 major influence in so many ways, isn't it, on board a ship? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a very big, um, uh, you know, mix, very big. Uh, I don't know. Trying to trying to get the right word here, but it's certainly yeah. a, a, a an ingredient in the mix that certainly makes it a hell of a lot more volatile. Yeah. Well, I mean, as as any as any, I'm fairly sure any Cold War captain would probably tell us, and especially the especially those who are on submarines and frigates, kind of at the front line, poking at each other. Half the battle when it comes to standoffs and and getting aggressively close to people in peacetime is about figuring out what the other captain is going to do. What's his attitude? How far is he willing to push it? How far are you willing to push it? And assuming that both sides are relatively competent and able to figure figure the other guy out to a certain degree, you can see things pushed right up to the limit, but usually not beyond it. Or if it does go beyond it, there's a clear sort of chain of events. OK, we know why this went this way. We can back off and have some angry diplomatic exchanges. But if you introduce an unstable additional element into the mix especially when you're talking about at sea when 
a captain's priority in peacetime is always going to be to his ship and his crew first, then if you've got another element that doesn't necessarily care so much about ship and crew, but is more about politics and saving face primarily, A, that makes it a lot harder for the other side to read what's going on, which makes things a lot more unpredictable and possibly more likely to go south very quickly. But it also means that for the sh- for the for the ship itself, they're not going to necessarily know one from one moment to the next what they're doing. So if if you're let's say for example in a few years, if the US decides to do another three carrier transit through the South China Sea, if the Chinese have completed whatever their third carrier is going to be called, and they've got Liaoning and Shandong and this carrier, and they decide, well, we're just going to match them. As a, as a way of showing off, we're going to sail our three carrier group right next to theirs. With the best will in the world, how at that point are they going? You don't, are they going to sail parallel to each other? If the Chinese group starts drifting towards them, is that a navigational error? Is that a deliberate attempt to force them off course? Are they going to ram us? Are they going to break off at the last minute? Are they going to sail dangerously close and take lots of photographs of equipment we'd rather they didn't? What's going on? within you know, within a, a chain where you've got well i'm a captain he's a captain we both have our ships to look after there's a certain amount of initial sort of a baseline supposition you can make as to how this is going to go down when you've got a second kind of wild card in there who may or may not order you to take liaoning into in full-fledged ramming mode with someone beating the drums on the bridge because sacrificing liaoning for the ford is probably in an accident quote-unquote is probably a good trade for china then who knows what's going to happen and and, and then then how do you react at that point (laughs) because the captain's going to be screaming i didn't want to do this this is all a horrible accident the u.s navy's looking at its latest carrier with a massive hole torn in its side in the middle of the south china sea everybody's panicking and all of a sudden about the only person who thinks this is all perfectly fine is the commissar yes Look, I think mean, you know politics never is a you know is, is never a good ingredient for any component of um, you know this sort of game, I guess. And I, I guess you know even uh, the few remaining captains that uh, countries like Great Britain have are increasingly worried about politics. Um, you know, it's it's you don't want to be seen driving the wrong car at the wrong time, or you lose your lose your um, commission, for example. Or you don't want to stand up for your crew when it's uh, suffering from COVID-19 because you might start a, a major incident at the highest levels of the nation's um, command. So, um, yeah, who would want to be a captain in these times? To be fair, the Royal Navy's had a couple of issues. It had the car issue where he had been warned several times, uh, as far as I understand, and then decided he was still going to use it. And the thing is... It's the official car, and he really shouldn't have. Or if he was going to use it, he should have probably made sure. uh, uh, There are all sorts of things go around. And one of the more interesting ones is, I'm not sure about this one, it's true, is if he or not only used the official car, but billed the government for the petrol. Um, (laughs) In nicest way. It's sort of, it's things of, you're in that post, you are going up to Admiral. That is your thing. If you're captain of HMS Queen Elizabeth of a carrier, the odds are you're being looked at to go up to Admiral. So you are going to be under more scrutiny than anyone else anyway. And the slightest fucking stupid thing, in the nicest way, they're looking at you as someone who's going to be in charge of the whole fleet. If you're prepared to do that, 
kind of silly little thing, then you might lie about readiness reports or something else. And it's a case of, okay, do we try? In a nice way, the role maybe isn't so big that they can go, we can absorb you at next level and see if you what you're going to do. We can just get rid of you. And, you know, we had the other incident where we had a um, submarine crew and he was the officer was specifically had requested several times. He had been doing all sorts of funny things. And then he requested, can I have a barbecue when we get back? Because we can't go anywhere because we're the alert submarine. So we're just going to be sitting on. And he was told no. The reason he was told no was because of various issues with the actual dock he was being put on and it being considered a fire risk because there were things okay yes it's a remote fire risk but there were things apparently nearby which if any even a remote fire risk is not going to be tolerated about and unfortunately a barbecue is a fire risk and um he did it and he got kicked out now he would go oh he's being kicked out for his ordering a barbecue well a he'd been told no on that one and i'm sorry if you are told no by the senior officer on the other base that is the no uh it, it's not a i i am commander of my ship i feel like doing this no if there is a senior officer goes sorry no i've got these x reasons so no um it's not a advisory but also if there is a scenario if he's already been mucking around the trouble is if you've already done a couple of things wrong a couple of things which have disquieted your senior command and then you don't do something which puts the good back in the in the in the sort of the box you get a good tick then if you keep doing things in the xbox eventually something's gonna go no bye because they have to they have to trust you with a nuclear submarine. They have to trust you with an aircraft carrier. They have to potentially trust you with a fleet. So what you're saying is they need political commissars? No. no it's, it's about, it's about <laughs> learning, basically, it's about learning where your limits are. I think the thing is, the captain is the master of his ship. But any officer, especially a captain, needs to understand that your authority begins and ends with your ship. There is a chain of command. If the chain of command, this is the thing. I mean, if you look at, even if you look at um, historical admirals all the way back to Nelson and, and be, before that, and through World War One and World War Two, the sensible captains and the good captains that you see pulling off all sorts of things that the Admiralty may or may not have been necessarily so happy about and definitely wouldn't have been happy about it if it hadn't worked. They, they aren't <laughs> dumb enough to ask permission first and then go directly against orders. They either creatively interpret the orders or they just go and do it and say, by the way, I did this. This is what happened. And at which point you present someone with a fait accompli. And you do have that thing of like, yeah, the captain is the ultimate authority on his ship. He didn't have any orders strictly against it. Therefore, you can't actually pin anything on him as long as he didn't go and lose an entire squadron or flotilla. The Basically, minute you ask it's for permission, an intelligence test. It, yeah. you know, are you smart enough to not ask permission? Yeah. The, the you're minute talking you are... about. Yeah. Sorry, you're talking about a navy which actually has a phrase written into its guidebook for officers and NCOs to say when briefing senior officers about what they're going to do. My intentions are. 
And that is basically code within the Royal Navy for unless what I'm going to be doing is completely and utterly stupid or there is no reason for it, you do, you just let me do this because these are my intentions. And yes. it's a very big thing because it's basically it's also saying if it affects, it's all on me. But, you know, this is the thing. But in the nicest way, if you say my intentions are and the senior officers go, uh, no, that's not a good idea. You then don't do it because they've probably got a reason. They know that it's a very, very bad idea because mm. the only time you cross the phrase my intentions is when it's an absolutely stupid idea and is guaranteed to fail or at least has a, a greater has a 60 a 60 percent yes and and the thing is apart from anything else once your senior officer tells you yes or no do do this or do not do this it's a direct order if yeah. you disobey that yeah. you, there is no real there's no option there that even if even if what you did afterwards is completely and utterly um completely and utterly justified there's very very little wiggle room for disobeyed a direct order so um, where does where, where does a commissar come into the chain of command well that's the trouble the commissar is theoretically possibly a junior officer it might be their first time at sea there might be there's only one usually on a ship as i understand it there's not necessarily especially on a smaller ship there's not necessarily there's not trainee commissar there's a you're trained you are a commissar you're on your ship on a ship so you could have someone who's literally been in the Navy for it's their first assignment and they're on a crew uh, on a large destroyer and there's a senior captain there and he's got to listen to this person who it's his first time at sea who might be being but, but, but does he, if, he's, if he's a junior officer, he's a junior officer. Um, yeah, but then you've got the supernumerary, I mean, supernumerary authority as a commissar. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the, the same thing as. Um, when when you look down at like the small small unit level, let's say in the infantry or something like that, this is why you, in a lot of ways, there's a parallel between newly minted second lieutenants and the senior NCOs. Theoretically, the second the, the, the your second lieutenant is the leader, but a good one listens to his NCOs. A bad one, just fresh out of whatever academy they've they that they've been in ah yes i know everything we will do this promptly drives the entire squad off a cliff um and and yeah this this is the hazard it's you it's that's kind of i'd say that's kind of the parallel where almost you could almost say that the captain is kind of like obviously he's a commissioned officer but he's the equivalent of like a senior nco he's been around the block he knows what he's doing hopefully he's got the trust of his men and he will effectively lead them with relatively minimal input and approval from from the squad's second lieutenant assuming that that person knows well enough to watch observe and occasionally imposes authority as and when needed as opposed to i'm in charge because my rank says so and that's that <laughs> so okay well if you're a political officer then um would you be deliberately um getting your submarine detected at, as you drive it down a narrow channel um, in uh, the, the Japanese islands, or um, is that a, a political signalling, or is it a mistake? <laughs> well, you see, the thing is, if you're doing, if one's detected, how many aren't haven't been detected? And if one's going noisy enough, it might well hide the passage of others. But it also is a very a glaring, obvious thing that we use this channel regularly. 
we're so used to you going here. We're prepared to go down here at high speed because if you're making noise in a submarine, that's usually because you're going fast. So we're so confident about our information, about our passage through here, that we're prepared to go at high speed. Mm. And remember, so underwater, we're you about, are we're talking about an incident uh, where um, the Japanese Navy followed a uh, well, it basically said it was a Chinese submarine mm. for two or three days as it moved out of the Pacific and into the East China Sea, and it passed down in a very narrow channel between islands, between um, Okinawa and um, the, the southern uh, homeland islands. Mm -hmm. So it was, it's, it's, it's very much a um, trailing your coattails kind of. Uh, yeah, Yeah, you don't do this if you don't want to be noticed, I guess. No, it's, it's a deliberate political statement at that point, because Okinawa, I mean, you look at how fiercely the Japanese fought for it in World War Two. It may not technically be a home island, but they, 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 as far as they're concerned, it's part of Japan. It, it, it's so to go between there and one of the actual official home islands. You're effectively violating territorial sovereignty with. The only big leaf of the fact it's not technically territorial sovereign waters, <laughs> according yeah, to international their, law. Area of definitely there within their um, area yeah. of I mean, it'd, control. It'd be the, it'd be the and and the thing is, there are other ways to the East China Sea. You don't mm. have to go this way. It's I mean, it'd be the equivalent if you're in the UK of um, of, a, of a Russian submarine heading for the Atlantic and instead of going north, not only do they go through the English Channel, but they go motoring up through the Solon. Or if you're, if I don't know, if it's a Chinese submarine heading for whatever reason, I guess maybe they're going to spy on the Japanese whaling fleet in Antarctica. Instead of taking in one of the numerous routes to do so, they deliberately cruise down the Australian east coast between the coast and the Great Barrier Reef. It's effectively flaunting. It's actually going back to what we were discussing a few episodes ago. It's effectively gunboat diplomacy. It's flaunting, flaunting yeah. your asset and saying, "Go on, then stop us if you can." What are you and, going to do about it? And, and we know your submarine features well enough to drive a submarine through them. Mm. So as in we, we've mapped your waters. Yeah. Um, I guess and that's the more scary thing in a way the fact that you're saying we can go through at such speed because we've mapped your waters well enough and also our navigation systems are reliable enough that we're prepared to do it hmm. so you're thinking it's more likely to have been deliberate than um, being picked up and followed yeah yeah, yeah the, the, I, I, you, I don't think they would ever ever take a submarine into that area um, and do and that, was, it, and allow that kind of thing to happen. It wasn't it attacked anything other than deliberately. If it had been trying to do it stealthily, the Japanese probably would have been less likely to reveal it because that would have revealed their own abilities to detect something going stealthily. But because they were going noisy, the only option the Japanese had to do was to go public yeah. or look afraid. Right. Yes. You can either go public and say, "Yeah, you did this. We know you did it." And we're telling everyone you did it. Or you can go, oh, they did it. So the, the, the choice is the, the Japanese have to go public and they have to be loud about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, about the same time, they, uh, China um, has um, added two new 
boomers in the service, bringing their total number up to six. Um, they look very, very much like the uh, 1970s Russian. The um, Deltas. Yeah, don't they? They've, that With that sort of almost tacked on as an afterthought hood on the back of the pressure hull. Um, but, you know, in the same way that they've rebuilt the... Um, the Badger bombers into their H6Ks. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that they, their capability must be somewhat more than just a Delta. Or is a Delta a Delta no matter Or is a Delta a Delta no matter what? What's, what, what's your thinking there? Is it, is it all about whole form or is it also about um, the internal arrangement? Well... I mean, the, the hunchback's there to accommodate the missiles without without having to build a truly colossal submarine. Um, so that in in that case, it's it's largely I think form follows function. Um, beyond that, you don't have quite the same design considerations with a nuclear missile sub as you do with just a standard nuclear attack sub because you're not supposed to be running this thing at high speed it's not supposed to be charging around and sneaking up on people it's supposed to be moving very slowly and very quietly so the hydrodynamics are not ideal certainly i mean there's a reason with when you see things like the ohio's and the vanguards and uh, even the typhoons and the bores, the, the the newer Russian ones. There's a reason you prefer a conformal hull, but at the same time, whilst whilst uh, the Allied various Western Allied navies were able to track deltas occasionally, they were still pretty hard to get a spot on. And I can't imagine that. I think this is one of the things you definitely can't afford to underestimate your enemy. Because that's that's the way you lose a lot of people very quickly when things go go active. So I'd say, I mean, you, when you look at this design, they I'm sure they would have preferred a a, a better design. But I'm I, at the same at the same instance. Just obviously, we don't need to know what the underwater hull form is. So it's probably fairly standard. But the certain elements of this hydrodynamic shaping, they're not bad. I would suspect if this thing's cruising around at 10, 15 knots, it's going to be a bit of a pig to find unless its engine or propeller setup is particularly noisy. And does it cruise you know, at 10, 15 knots or does it sit and quietly somewhere? Mm. That's the thing. Does it shut, cut down to about four or five knots, just steerage in a current and just quietly drift and just keep drifting while it's underwater? Because it's nuclear powered, so it doesn't need to come up for air. So got all the it's got advantages. You can turn everything down as low as you go, and then you've got a problem. Uh, and I also guess on top of that is that the, there's been a long-term speculation that uh, you know, this is part of the um, push to claim the South China Sea is to have a safe lake in which you can park your boomers, uh, protected by 55 diesel electrics, which will be all sitting around those various. Uh, choke points 
there's not all that many of them, I suppose, um, which feed in and out of the South China Sea. So if you could, you, you, how much effort do you need to make a perfectly quiet boomer, as long as it's quiet enough? Mm. And, uh, you know, are you going to be, how brave a captain will you need in a, um, a Western sub submarine to go through one of those limited number of narrow choke points, run the gauntlet of um, diesel electric defending submarines, run the gauntlet of nuclear defending submarines to actually find a boomer in the in the first place. I, I guess if that's the scenario being painted, I mean, I guess it's even similar for the East China Sea, isn't it? Maybe not quite as much because you've got, you've got um, Japan right there, but it's still a enclosed, largely enclosed waterway, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also the, the, the obviously this is the, the Chinese nuclear ballistic missile fleet is not the largest at the moment, but it's growing and just having more ships gives them, or boats, I suppose, it gives them options when it comes to <clears throat> how they want to deploy them because there are two very different schools of thought. Obviously, we know with the, the, the Russian boats in the Cold War, they did prefer their kind of big northern bastion that they could sit in and protect, which is yeah, similar to what the Chinese could pull off with the South China Sea. But at the same time, you also have the operational profile of the Royal Navy, the US Navy, the French Navy, where they send them out into patrol areas that are unknown in the middle of the deep ocean. And if you've got, if you're, say, China, and you've only got a very small number of nuclear submarines, it makes sense to play it safer when you have, theoretically, a, a safer area to, to keep them in. But once you've got up to a point where you have enough numbers, that you can have one on station and also have another one operational, then you can start playing about with other tactics and techniques. So getting one out into the middle of the Pacific and so going quiet. It works, it works both ways, though, doesn't it? Mm. Because those choke points that stop you from going in, uh, also gauntlets, you have to run on the way out. Yeah, but yeah. With, the, with, with the endurance of a, of a ballistic missile submarine, even if you have a known data point of, right, this missile submarine transited this straight at this time, <clears throat> how far out can it go? I mean, it's a nuclear sub. It can theoretically go for as long as it likes. As long as its supplies last, once it gets out into the Pacific, you've either got to basically be tailing it all the time and hope you never lose the contact, or if once it gets out there, you now have a, a, a very very unknown contact. And there's, I guess, there's there's two ways of of looking at it because it, the the South China Sea pen, if you like, is very much defensive measure. It's kind of like we have our mm. second strike capability. You can't do anything about it. Um, if you try anything, we can and we'll hit you back. But once they've got the numbers to start thinking about also being able to send subs out into the Pacific, if they choose to do so, that in and of itself is a very much more aggressive posture because there's nothing particularly to be gained by having a submarine drifting around the Pacific that you wouldn't gain if it was in the South China Sea, unless you're intending to drift it close off the American West Coast. And if you're intending to do that, that's the profile for a very short notice, effectively almost direct ballistic missile attack profile, which everyone's been worried about since the first proper nuclear missile subs have been invented. 
Mm. Now, obviously, mm. you don't necessarily do that all the time, but you might want to train your crews. Then this is how you can you can do it if necessary. And subsequent to that, any movement of subs, nuclear missile subs, the minute they cross through those those choke points, immediately becomes that threat, regardless of whether or not they actually yes. cross the Pacific yes. or not. So uh, another powerful diplomatic signaling, uh, yeah, like diplomacy. Exactly. Yes, and at which point you, you, the U.S. Navy really wishes it had more seawolves. <clears throat> really, really wishes because Virginias are good. Don't get me wrong; they are good. And honestly, you could probably crack the South China Sea with Virginias. Because um, I'm sort of thinking, well, there are some interesting ways you could do it. Uh, if I was going to startle the SSKs, maybe I'd drop some sonar boys on active from a P8. Just have it flop over the entrance and blop, blop, blop them in. And then just watch and see if any of them start moving and what returns I get on my passive sonar. And then mark them up. And then as I drift slowly through, just plop off mark 48 um but you know that's just me being cynical um <laughs> yeah uh, uh there is sort of there i have a lot it's a lot, it's like with tom phillips and 4c i have a lot of sympathy for him he's a career destroyer officer who suddenly put in charge of battleships of course he charges the enemy it's what he's spent his whole life being trained to do um but with you see, I see the South China Sea as being a, an advantage for China, but also a trap for China. I think they are getting very, very focused on the South China Sea, and I can see it becoming a problem for them in a conflict because they are designing everything around fighting a certain form of battle in the South China Sea. And their idea is that the Allies will come in. Well... There is also the always the old idea that if your enemy has a very large, very powerful fortress, let them stay in it. Because while they're in there, they can't do anything to you. And the thing is, the South China Sea could become both the strength for the China in that it can protect their SSBNs, but it could become also their weakness because they put so much into protecting and defending the South China Sea that all their forces around the world get mopped up quite quickly. And so they get control of the South China Sea, but they lose, lose any control and influence over the world. And that becomes a problem for China because they want to, it's going to be a case of, we won the battle which never happened because the Allies go, right, and we can sit from outside the South China Sea and start hitting you if we want, and they probably will do. Honestly, if I wanted to keep them in the South China Sea, I would have a couple of carrier groups outside the South China Sea keep coming in, doing raiding missions and attacking those submarines and doing all sorts of things just to keep them busy, keep them focused on the South China Sea, while I mopped up the rest of the Chinese force in the rest of the world. I would literally look like I was playing into their hands while I took them apart in the rest of the world, and then I would sort of, then I'd work out what I was going to do. But I would Literally, they, they'd be so focused on the South China Sea, they would miss that they were losing. They were they were so focused on one battle, they'd lose the war. But we're seeing them building massive bases in uh, Djibouti and the Horn of Africa. With their, um, they've got a potential base in the Maldives, potential base in um, Ceylon, yeah. um, potential base in Pakistan. You know, Although the one almost... in Ceylon, the Indian Navy will be absolutely royally pissed about. But, but so you know, and what, what you know, we're talking 
Um, okay, there's a is it NATO base in um, Dubuti as well. There's um, Diego Garcia, I suppose. So, you know, already that's starting to look like they've got more um, docking, major docking facilities there than, um, say, the United States. Although I suppose the United States can drop into Perth, but um, it's not well, exactly that, on it's not exactly it's, on friendly relations that's yet. That's true, Indians. and it, that's true, and it's lovely to have those things. But if you're going to focus everything on the South China Sea and defending that, then you're not going to be using those facilities. They're basically they're peacetime for gallivanting around the world, but in wartime you're basically you're going to be ignoring them. So anything you're putting there is going to be lost, or you're going to be doing what happened to the China squad, uh, the China uh, Africa squadron or under Graf Spey, you know, in World War One. In that there's these going to be small penny packet forces which are going to be around the world, and they're going to be left with a job of either you do surface raiding or you make a run for home. And to get home, they have to get through the Straits of Malacca. To get home, or they have to go past the Falkland Islands. Either way, they could find Allied forces waiting for them, supported forces waiting for them. There are, they could go further south than the Straits of Malacca. They could aim closer to Australia, but that's really not good because the Australian Navy. Well, let's be honest. The Australian Navy is well known for basically being a whole host of tribal class destroyers. Which, if you don't understand, also, go look also, at my previous videos on. It's also terribly, terribly small. Um, so, yeah, yeah but they are, when they is, launch HMAS Kangaroo Punch, it won't matter how small they are, they will still win. But, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, you, you still have your Force Z scenarios, surely. You will have the token force uh, sent from a long distance to wave the flag around Singapore, um, Indonesia, um and it'll be hung out to dry. I can't, yeah. Unless, unless you've really who's got. Who's 4C are you talking about? Well, this is the point. Does it does it really matter? Is I mean, it China's 4C that will be hung out to dry, or is it the Allied 4C? Because let's be honest, well, it's... if you've got Singapore on your side, there's a a lot more aircraft than there were there previously. B, there's a lot of ships by the local areas in the region, and the whole point about 4C is it's this unsupported task group. Which is literally two a battleship, a battle cruiser, and a handful of destroyers. It is frankly pathetic posturing, and I am really, really committed to this one because I've done doing whole sort of videos that are coming out today actually. Um, and it is it, it it only makes sense in Winston Churchill's mind when Admiral Sir Dudley Pounder's advising against it. Admiral Phillips is advising against it. Everyone who's involved in it from the Navy is advising this is not what you do with this force. Okay. But, so let's let's just let's just wind it. To, uh, what if? <laughs> um, you know, it's, we're we're talking a situation here where the West is under resourced again. Yeah. Um, you've got a lot of political posturing going on, and what's to send the Modern Prince wants to stop the modern Prince of Wales being sent over here as a political gesture to the people back home more so than an actual effective um, self-sustaining supported force. Well, I'd hope it's not sent before we have our own F uh, some F-35Bs for it. Um, mm. uh, at least a couple of squadrons, please. Uh, if well, it is uh, sent before, that's, then that's, you... that's part of the point, though, isn't it? That, uh, that that's uh, looking less likely with uh, the various budget considerations at the moment. Mm. 
So, uh, that, that's always an issue. There is the NAA report. The thing some, is, some Cessnas. They'll be able to take off from the flight there, wouldn't they? Uh, we've still got some. Okay. Ha- we've still got some C Harrier Mark IIs <laughs> in the museum. No, no, no they're, still, they're still being run around at Yeovilton and Cold Rose. Yeah, that's how that's how they're keeping the uh, deck man- deck management and pilot training up until the thirty five Bs come in. Yeah, the, the Royal Navy has about I think it's about thirty two of them. <laughs> so it, it, you're talking about this scenario? It'll be a squadron of maybe a squadron of thirty five Bs and a couple of squadrons of Harriers. <laughs> That'll confuse <laughs> them. The, so, uh, the, 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 the Chinese name goes, where did they get the Harriers from? Where did the Harriers appear from? They, they have Harrier, C, Har- How did the Sea Harrier 2s not get sold off? Well, apparently they sold off all the GR7s and uh, GR9s mm. and all the latest GR1s which are in. But the Sea Harriers had all been transferred to some weird section of the Navy. Mm. Ah. The Royal Navy Sorry. really is the yeah. naval version of the old lady who keeps uh, keeps strands of uh, things and the old man who keeps pieces of wood. They're, be, they're being maintained off of the Admiral's uh, dinner budget or mm-hmm. meals and entertainment budget. Um, uh, they're, they're being maintained. In surpri- Let's put it this way. Uh, no one's quite sure how they continue to still exist, but we do know their engines occasionally get turned on a run. Mm. So that would suggest they're still working or at least able to be made working in short order. Right. But anyway, the point being is, is that, you know, um, it's a long way from anywhere. Yes. Um, and it means tokenisms, you know, especially since we've, the whole pivot to Asia never eventuated. And let's face it, it's not really likely to eventuate. So you're going to be getting a token force of, you know, the French carrier flying, over, uh, wandering over here, waving its flag. We'll have the token force of, you know, um, Prince of Wales coming over here waving its flag. We'll have the occasional. Actually, Queen Elizabeth is due to visit first. Mm. Yes, well, I, yeah, I think, I think it's going. I think so. it's going to depend. In that kind of scenario, it would depend very much on how strong, either how strong the various alliances are at that point, or how much China has managed to politically divide everybody, because the U.S. at the moment. With the, its various commitments and its size, the U.S. Navy, you can't really say it could pull a force set because even if it sends a single LHD or a, or a carrier, everyone knows there's plenty more where that came from. The biggest problem, one of the biggest problems with force said was that there wasn't anything more where it came from. The Royal Navy had plenty of other ships, but they were all busy doing other things. The the that wouldn't be the case in the U.S. Navy. The flip side is if it's Queen Elizabeth or Prince of Wales. If there is a real risk of something going south, again, with the best one in the world, we we don't have as many capital units as we did back then. So the Royal Navy is going to be in a much stronger position to, to stand back up to the politicians. And if they do send them that way and say, actually, no, you're risking half our strategic carrier assets on a political uh, flag waving exercise, we are not very, very much not happy about this. And if they absolutely still get overruled because politicians, um, then this is where the the system of alliances comes into place, because that is where you probably see the Royal Navy going to the French. Well, is Charles de Gaulle operational this week? Um, Do you mind coming with? 
And then I guess if, 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 this, if, if it all blows up with, if it continues to blow up with the Indians, it'd be like, right, Vikramaditya, is, is that one still working? Would you, would you want to come and play with us? Australians um, can, is Canberra operational? Do you want to come and say hello? And th- this is, this is the kind of thing the Royal Navy would be very good at assuming that China hasn't managed to politically divide everyone. They'll be, they'll be given the, the letter of their orders is go and go and uh, try and scare the Chinese with one carrier and a few escorts. Nobody said anything about encouraging friends to come along with them. Yes. So, in other um, words, it's a good time not to have the political officer on board. Yes. And you have to remember, the Royal Navy is par excellence. It has actually, it's been really pushing a lot recently in rebuilding those relationships. You know, you, you'd almost be looking at a point where I wouldn't be surprised in this, under such a circumstance if you didn't find a Canadian frigate also coming along to play. Uh, you know, there'd be all sorts of random ships would probably appear in the ta- for the sort of task force exercise, and it would be it would be interesting watching it run, honestly, to see how it worked together. But it would also be a very big problem for China in that it's going to sound strange if you want to make China lose face, and face is what they are often cheaply observed saving, and you can see this in their reaction to COVID and other things you turn up with all your friends because nothing makes you look sadder than having no friends. Mm. And, and then the thing is the, the other wonderful thing is if it's the Royal Navy, who's organizing this, the Royal Navy is a far more practical organization than any political group. The, if it, if it was a formal diplomatic effort to say, get the Indians on board, the, there would probably be all sorts of back and forth about who who is who who is in overall command who is the the like is india is showing itself as sta- as standing on its own two feet coming to the rescue of its colonial masters and former colonial masters and all of this kind of thing which would happen on a political stage with the royal navy they genuinely don't care it's just like, is the ship going to be there? Is the carrier going to be there? Can we all operate together professionally? Yes, fine. Let the politicians flap around and worry about it later. Or we we genuinely couldn't care less. Honestly, so, there are quite a lot of the. It's going to sound strange. Quite a lot of the politicians would prefer the navy to just organise this because then they could jump in for the photo op and they wouldn't have to get into that politics because mm. that politics would be quite problematic and yeah. quite difficult. And it's one of those things that, you know, especially with India, the post-colonial relationship, the sheer large numbers of sort of um, uh, Indian ethnicity people who have moved to Britain have met. We do have a very strong links going back and forth. So post-colonial, we Mm. still have we have a relationship going on and it does make sense to work together occasionally. But it's um, one of the other interesting things, because considering the Royal Navy's, you know, attitude to politics is who else comes along. And that's the thing. You could find it in the, under those circumstances. The Chinese could be going, yes, we've been taunting the British. Oh, my God, they've got a load of pals. <laughs> Where did they come from? <laughs> that's not fair. Yes. Well, I mean, you might even bring this, 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 But this is exactly what the Bolton Road is all about, though, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, well, you might yeah. even bring along the Italian carrier, because that will really confuse everybody. Yeah, but didn't they just sign the up? The Italians have a carrier which is working in the Far East. Yes, <laughs> but they have also recently signed up big time to Belton Road. Mm. Yeah, so they've got a fairly significant financial incentive not to have a carrier working in the Far East. 
they've also got a fairly significant political incentive to have the carrier working in the Far East, it's, even it's, if it's, it's not it's, actually going to do anything because it makes it look like they haven't been bought to their public. Mm. So domestically, yeah. it's quite a good thing. You might not trust it in the times of a war fight if anything happens, but there again, if something happens and they're right next door and their ally, their NATO allies are being attacked by the Chinese, then they probably would also then be forced to do it and do something. Well, even this, if they didn't want to. So it's kind of a scenario of, A, there's political advantages to doing it, because it allows them to look independent. And then if they're in their scenario and the Chinese did something, the Chinese would find that they would force them to do something. Mm. I mean, but the, I think uh, it's the Chinese could overplay their hand far easier than... Yeah. yeah. And, th- there's, and the thing is, there's all sorts of... The, this is one of the reasons why I, I, I don't like touching politics too much, but po- politics can be incredibly two-faced. So... As long as it's a standoff or show of force style scenario with no active shooting going on, politicians would be perfectly happy to play both sides of the coin. You take the Italians, for example, they could be perfectly happy to send a a carrier and a small group saying, look, we're doing our part for the for the Western Alliance. We're here. We're showing we're, like, we're, we're, we're with you and all this kind of thing, which sells well to the Italian public generally. But also at the political level, they might also be communicating with um, with Chinese diplomats saying, well, look, this is we're doing this for a public show of face. We're, we're, we're not necessarily going to back everyone up in if it gets to an actual shooting war. So don't read too much into this, et cetera, et cetera. They might be saying that behind closed doors, which might smooth things over between the two of them diplomatically. But I, from, from, I, from, I from a, because I think that primary concern for the CCP is the message that's being sent to its people at home. So I suppose while they can just blank out any news of this uh, censor it all. You know, cooperative force um, behind the lines, it's still a you know, it's, it's, it, well, it's the they, they, question is, can they? They, they understand getting... the, the idea of saving face and this is, this is one of the weird things, the Chinese very much understand the idea of pub, what it looks like in public, are they saving, who's saving face and how so, if there are people who potentially so, so by sending the Italian carrier along, but by sending the Italian carrier along, you're not saving them face. You're <laughs> doing the opposite. Yes, so. but then, but but if you if you're the Chinese, if you're the Chinese, if someone comes up to you and says, "Well, we're we're doing this in order to save our own face," they might not like it, but they're going to understand it a lot more than perhaps a more binary view of things, which is weird because this the whole saving face thing all over the world has caused so many problems before, but weirdly enough might actually be beneficial in this particular kind of scenario. Um, everyone's saving face in various ways. Because the thing is, again, you can play it different ways. The From a Western perspective and from a military perspective, it looks very impressive that the Royal Navy has brought along all these friends and they're all, they're all acting together and in concert. From the Chinese perspective... If if I if you if I if I was to put a, a Chinese hat on and suddenly decide right I how do I spin this to the benefit of the PRC, then I would probably go with something along the lines of ah yes look well 150 years ago the British Empire humiliated China now they have to go and gather all these other friends because they're too weak to stand up to us on their own. That's how you could you could sell it to the Chinese public. Yeah. There's, there, there's always multiple ways of looking at it, but true, true. there's there's a, there's a difference between how you sell it to the public because you can sell anything to the public as long as you spin it right, and what the mm. actual reality is on the ground. Because, <laughs> and the trouble is for China is 
especially with recent events, I am starting to think they might be having less success over their censorship than they're banking on with their public. Looking at what's happened with the COVID-19 and some of the scenarios, and it's almost a case of there are ways of getting around the censorship, and there are ways of getting it, and it's starting to proliferate with the younger generation. And I'm looking at it, and I'm listening to some of the things and going, okay, so... Their reason the Chinese Communist Party is now banging the nationalist drum is because the communist drum is stopping, is not working as well as it used to. So they are now banging the nationalist drum. And that's, that's usually the first resort of a, uh, you know, an authoritarian government in trouble is the nationalist drum. And, uh, you know, yeah. we see, we're, seeing it, we're seeing it with Putin as well. You know, um, he's banging the drum now in Libya as well as in Syria and in um, Croatia. So, um, and the nationalist drum is a lovely drum, but the beat only goes on for so long. And you know, it appeals to a certain sector as well. It's, yeah, it's, it, it's not a necessarily a broad um, sector, but it's a, a sector that can be quite vocal and um, uh, quite intimidating, I suppose. Yes. Which brings us back to the political commissars. You don't want too many of those to be that type, but guess where they're going to be drawn from? Yeah, that's the trouble. The, who are the people who are likely to become political commissars? Who are the, you know, what are they keen for? Also, their their role they're going to be looking at is advancing within the party, not within the navy. That's a political commissars pro, uh, the big problem. For political commissars, they don't care so much about the navy. They care about advancing in the party. They care about getting advanced. So they have therefore a different metric of success than the rest uh, than the na- uh, than the strictly naval mm-hmm. officers. Yes, and that's again a problem when you've got this big scenario of these, um, let's say, an alliance force forming up in the south, off the in the Malacca Straits or the South China Sea. You know, even Royal Navy led, Royal Navy, um, not say let's not say led, but Royal Navy organized, uh, organized, facilitated one. Mm. Um, you know, in a nice. It, 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 if you've got those political commissars, they're going to be going, oh, we must show they're divided, they're, you know, that they're not really a strong alliance, that we are a strong alliance because we're united. And you might well get some very, very hairy moments where their ships try to drive into the middle of the task force and things like that. We're already seeing it, um, you know, instances where, well, as I said, as I've said previously, the Australian former, one of our former Australian prime ministers was unwilling to send Australian frigates into the, um, you know, the, the, illegal um, sovereignty zones around artificial islands, which are recognised by the United Nations, but he was unwilling to do so because he didn't feel he would, feel he would get the backup um, if there was a confrontation. So, Well, yeah, I mean, again, trying not to get too political, but this kind of <laughs> does bring it to the bring up a point I've I've maintained for a very long time, which is that the UN doesn't really mean anything. The UN is a talking shop that can pass all sorts of resolutions. Um, and actually, to take a phrase from American history, um, I think it was Andrew Jackson who talked about the Supreme Court, who said, yes, they've made their ruling. Now let them enforce it. This but is that's the, the, nature the of UN democracy. hasn't had teeth since the Korean War yeah, in and of yeah. itself. The UN has teeth when the big backers actually decide that it has teeth. 
but that's the fundamental thing of democracy, which China is trying to you know, uh, leverage at all levels, from local governments all the way through to national and international organisations. Um, you know, a, a democratic institution is only as powerful as the people want it to be. Mm. Now, that yeah. applies well, to everything from the United Nations down to your local council. And yeah. that's why I'll say the... the, the, the China the interfering yeah. in the local councils now? Good God, that explains so much. <laughs> Although <laughs> we're getting but, more efficient. Yeah, but, but I mean, in, in all seriousness, the thing is, the UN can say we don't recognise these territorial zones all they like. The, you're not going to see a UN painted ta naval task force coming to back up Australia. So no. that the the, the 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 Australian Prime Minister's decision makes perfect sense in that regard because, yeah, it's the the UN's made a decision, but who's going to actually enforce it? Australia's not going to against China. The, yes. the question, really, in this kind of standoff scenario, is what does the United States think about it? If the United States decides that these territorial um, artificial island things are enough of a problem for them to worry about and enough of a problem they want to stand up to them, uh, stand up to China about, then the Australian Navy can move in in the relatively sure expectation that the Americans will thank them and back them up for effectively doing some of their job for them. But unless and until in, in this particular theater of operations, unless and until the Americans decide it's something they want to really get um, angry about, it's not worth anybody else trying, trying anything. Mm. And the, the, it's the, superpower the, politics. Yeah. That's what and it's, the, it's going to. And it, mm. the same thing is going to apply all across the, all across the world in different local theaters. It's like in the Barents Sea, it's like, does Russia consider this a problem? In the North Sea, does the Royal Navy consider this a problem? And so on and so forth. I mean, fair enough, in most of the most of the oceans these days, it's does the US consider it a problem or not? But no one's no one's going to bother enforcing any kind of UN mandate or restriction or resolution unless and until the dominant sea power in the region decides that actually, yes, we do want to see this enforced or not. Gunboat diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and we keep and being told it's gone away and it, it, it stopped happening. And you go, uh, yeah, when did it stop happening? Yes. Well, I think that's getting close to our time, guys. Mm. It is. Good Lord. Have we actually covered them all? Let's see. Nuclear yes, Summary, South County, Malacca Strait. We, we haven't really got as much into the Malacca Strait as we could do. Uh, um, yeah, and a very nice could... scenario involving a Royal Navy organised fleet. <laughs> <laughs> that is very much the same thing, isn't it? I mean, because otherwise it's just a... A, a watchship versus watchship scenario, which is always in that realm of what if. So oh, you know, yeah. a scenario of can is is it a another aforesaid um, waiting to happen, and potentially yeah, I guess, um, and uh, unless all the friends come along, yeah, because yeah. You know, uh, I think that the Indian Ocean is probably that. Uh, I don't know. I, I, the Indian Ocean just seems to be a bit too far away from the US for them to be interested in. Although they've got, of course, a, a quite a strong presence in the um, Persian Gulf, but um, mm, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it, it comes. It, what it's going to come down to in the end is, unfortunately, political will, because the mili the, the various militaries, especially something like the Royal Navy, will always do its utmost to fulfil its goals, um, whatever those happen to be. But whether we like it or not, China is a rising power. It has a lot of money. It has a lot of ships. It's going to have even more ships. And as we've covered in other podcasts, uh, earlier episodes, 
it pretty much is the end of the, the era of the spoken word and the angry letter because people have realized you can ignore that if you have enough firepower to back it up. Um, and you can argue who set that precedent in the past few decades and whatever, but that's really a bit immaterial to the situation we have now of the fact that if China wants to do something, China knows that China can get its way to a greater or lesser degree by simply exerting military might. If various other powers want to stop that, want to counter that, want to tell China, no, this is, this is how things work, or you, you play over there, we play over here, or whatever message you want to send, you have to have sufficient, either sufficient military might on your own or sufficient friends to, to force the issue, even if you don't actively shoot a missile. And then this is where it all comes back down to the political will. The political will has to be not only that they want to stand up to China, but that they are willing to fund the resources to do so. Because politicians can pontificate all they like in their own little environment, but unless and until they're willing to fund the defence budget enough so that the military can back up their words, they're going to find themselves on a short hiding to nothing. So the, 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 the various politicians in the various countries of the world, they basically have to make a choice. Are they either going to kowtow to, and I use the term deliberately, to China, in much the same way that a lot of the Western countries, for better or worse, if you want to be blunt, did exactly the same thing to the US in the Cold War? Or do they want to have their own ideas? If they want to have their own ideas, they have to be able to back them up with a mailed fist. And if they're not prepared which, to fund that mailed fist, then you better learn to speak Chinese as a second language. Which is <laughs> so much harder, of course, uh, post-COVID or mm. mid-COVID. Um, and yet uh, here we are seeing um, China increasing its budget somehow towards the defences, uh, its military forces again. So it's, yeah, well, yeah. yeah I, suppose but that's to, what... I, suppose, I suppose if you're an authoritarian in charge of Beijing, you're going to need to keep your military happy, aren't you? Well, it's also where, where are your priorities? Because with the best will in the world, China is, I think, is seeing the whole COVID situation as an opportunity. Everybody else is short on funds, a lot more looking inwards looking after their own on a if on a cold hard strategic calculation this is the perfect opportunity to start throwing your weight around and and take things that maybe people wouldn't have let you take before because people are too distracted and can't, america has an election stop. coming up there's all yeah. sorts of things which you know are playing into their hands at the precise moment yeah, and America and, has never been more divided in many ways at the moment than it is now. Yeah. Although, and uh, and so and so again, it comes back. Except the last time they were shooting each other. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it becomes well, well, still the same state, uh, same nation. Yeah, yeah, but it's it, you've got to. They say it's the the money is there in in most Western countries, but places like France, the UK, um, India, even uh, even uh, like Australia. The money's there if they want to spend it, if it's high enough of a priority. But what is their priority? Is their priority bread and circuses or is it defence? And they've got to make that choice one way or the other. And if they try and play both ends against the middle, they'll end up with none. <laughs> yeah. But this is this is why politicians are politicians and... That well, that's why that's why we're historians and not politicians. <laughs> yes, keep me away from oh. politics. Uh, 
if it, if, it, if 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 some some if someone traveled back in time and switched me over to the political side the dark side uh, in my formative years at this point you'd probably probably have like first lord of the admiralty drat <laughs> at, on the bow of the royal of like hms vengeance the royal navy's latest <laughs> command cruiser pointing a sword at the at the chinese <laughs> captain of a patrol boat who's at six feet away just before i run him down but this is why i'm not in politics <laughs> my solution will be driving closer i will hit them with my sword mm. i <laughs> like again, it yeah then again my idea of 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 international politics should re- is really that the UN the UN should convert their uh, speech floor to a, a royal rumble ring, and all decisions yeah. should be decided by personal combat between the two leaders who want to who want something. In which case, I, think I vote the rock for the US president. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the ticket sales? The rock versus Vladimir Putin over the issue of the international arms limitation treaty. <laughs> Certainly going to be better than the head of the apprentice. <laughs> oh. Uh, Boris Johnson could probably just rugby tackle and squash most heads of state. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah he's really done it to schoolboys, isn't he? Yeah, he, well, he, yeah, he's he's got a proven track record of being able to to body check people out, 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 in a, inappropriately. So, <laughs> all right. Anyway, we better leave it there before we get far too far into the realm of politics. Yeah. So that's been Jamie Seidel from Armored Carriers, Drac, aka and the other, another Alex from yes. Drac and Fennell, and me, Alex Clark, from. Naval History Live, I suppose, I now have to say. And uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you all. See you. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.